You're listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. For more information on this message and other resources, visit queencity.church. Good morning, everybody. It's great to see you here. I've been studying the book of Ruth. How many of you are familiar with the book of Ruth? number of you familiar with it? Yeah, great, great, great. Four chapters. I'm going to look predominantly this morning at the, the first chapter. Um, in looking at the book of Ruth, it reminded me of something out of the Gospels in, in Matthew 14. And actually, Kim touched on it this morning when she talked about being beautifully broken. How many of you remember the remarks that she made about being beautifully broken? And I see a pattern in in Matthew 14 that, to be quite honest with you, it bothers me. Surprise, surprise, surprise <laughs> about the ways of God bothering us or surprising us. But the pattern I see in Matthew 14, we will also see in the book of Ruth. And the pattern in Matthew 14 is when Jesus commanded the multitudes to sit down on the grass. This is the story of the, the loaves and the fishes, one of, one of the situations where Jesus fed the multitude. And I see a bit of a pattern here that is not just a biblical pattern I believe it's a picture of what happens in our lives, but I don't think we quite understand it. So I wanted just to mention this. It says, Jesus took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke and gave the loaves to the multitudes, and the disciples gave, uh, gave the loaves to the disciples, rather, and the disciples gave to the multitudes, so they all ate and were filled. And so the pattern I see there, I believe, is a pattern that has gone on uh, in our spiritual lives that we haven't really understood. And the pattern is when Jesus, we meet the Lord, or he takes us, actually, uh, uh, Peter and I were talking about this just a little earlier, when he took the bread and when he takes us, what's the first thing we find out that he does? He blesses it. Just say that. He blesses it. He blesses it. But then what does he do? He breaks it. And then he gives it. And then it feeds. Now, it would make more sense to me if he found us broken, and he blessed us. Woohoo! You're right? But how many of you, if you look back at your life, see that when you met the Lord, how many of you were really, really blessed? Something happened in your heart. Wave at me. I think you're out there. I just want to make sure you know it. He blesses us, but then stuff happens. How many of you know? The breaking comes. And we think two things at least. What did I do 
wrong or what did I not do right? Guess what? It doesn't work that way. It simply doesn't work that way. I think about the verse where Jesus said, in the world you shall have what? Tribulation or trouble. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And so the reality of the Christian life is they're going to things we don't like, we can simply not avoid. And it doesn't indicate that we haven't done the right thing or that we did the wrong thing. It's simply the nature of existence. How many of you hear me? And you can see a process too that God will bless us, but then we will go through times of breaking. And there are things that happen in those times of breaking. If we navigate it in a, in a hope-filled way, it enables us to feed multitudes, to feed others. But if we don't see it, if we're not careful, we'll lose heart. You listening? We'll lose heart. Well, that's exactly what we see in the book of Ruth. So let me give you some background. Then we're going to look at the first chapter. The book of Ruth is a story of a family that suffered significant and tragic loss, but that's not where the story ends. Uh, Brian Simmons has a commentary that he wrote, and here's what he said about Ruth. After beginning the story that unfolds in the book of Ruth, one could understandably mistake it for a book of abandonment. In the opening verses, we find severe famine, the death of main characters, and barrenness, and familial abandonment. One of the main characters even changed her name to Bitter, for she believed God had dealt her a bitter blow, bringing her back to her homeland empty and destitute. However, the reader would be mistaken to assume that that's the whole story. Actually, it's just the beginning. So what I'm thinking about this morning is this idea that Ruth was a friend indeed. And this book really is like an unexpected diamond. We need to see the context in which it emerges. It's set against the black backdrop of the period of the judges in Israel. That was the era in the history of Israel marked by immorality, idolatry, and conflict. And the setting of this book is significant for our generation because I believe those days in the book of Ruth are much like these days. How, much, how many of you can see the parallel? It really, really is there. Respect for authority had been lost. Actually, in those days, there was no recognized authority. In those days, there are two statements that describe that period of history. The Israelites did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. But out of this chaos, out of this confusion, emerges this amazing story of Ruth and the reality that in every generation, God has faithful followers and loyal friends. Let me say that again. In every generation, God has faithful followers and loyal friends. And those kinds of people can actually begin to turn the tide of their generation. How many of you are with me so far? 
the faithfulness of Ruth. It's just amazing. So we begin the story in verse 1, the first five verses. And what I'm going to do, I'm going to read these, and then I'm going to mention um, what some of the names mean because there's insight or there's, say, revelation in the meaning of the names that can um, really help us this morning. Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to dwell in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech. Say that five times in a hurry. Elimelech. That's okay. The name of his wife was Naomi. His two sons were Malin and Chilion. These are all typical 20, is this the 21st century? Did we slip over a couple years back? 21st century names. Ephrathites, say that backwards. Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah. I got to have some water. And they went to the country of Moab and remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left and her two sons. Now the two sons took wives of the women of Moab. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. And they dwelt there about 10 years. Then both Malin and Chilion also died. So the woman survived her two sons and her husband. Pretty bleak story so far. Anybody encouraged yet? I didn't think so. So the story begins by showing us that there's a famine in Bethlehem. And this prominent wealthy family moved their entire household and immigrated to the land of Moab. Now, a side note is, how many of you know what the word Bethlehem means? House of bread. Where was Jesus born, the bread of life? Bethlehem. Interesting enough, Bethlehem literally means house of bread, but you could say there was no bread in the house of bread. And then we need to recognize that Moab was one of Israel's ancient adversaries. So as we look at this, we see that the patriarch of that family is named Elimelech, whose name means God is king. His wife's name, Naomi, means pleasant or a whole category of other ideas, gracious, sweet, delightful, or even unsurpassed beauty. But we could say her name means pleasant. They were a very significant family. We find that from the text. And for them to leave Bethlehem for Moab was an extreme move to make. They were leaving their ancestral homeland for a foreign nation who worshiped another God. And so we begin to look at this. Elimelech and Naomi and the two sons, Malin and Chilion. Malin's name means a sickly. Think about naming your child sickly. Chilion's name means destruction or failing. Those guys didn't have a chance. Malin means sickly. Chilion means destruction. Can you imagine naming your children that? Can you imagine going to the door, supper time, walking out the back door, calling out to your children, sickly, destruction, dinner's ready. Okay, what is that all about? Well, I think it says a number of things, but let's look at this one. 
This speaks about how we, quote, name, unquote, our children. And I'm not just speaking of their given legal names, but how we actually speak into them. Parents, how many of you are listening to me? What we say to them, how we describe them to themselves. We need to be careful what we say to our children, particularly when we're angry with them. How many of you can relate to to that? How many grew up hearing you'll never amount to anything? How many of you grew up feeling like you were a loser? Well, at least your name wasn't destruction or sickly. You've got a little benefit here, but that makes a difference. So Elimelech dies. The two sons marry Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth. Orpah's name sounds like the Hebrew word rebellious, but Ruth's name means close friend. And in Hebrew, it sounds like the word refreshing. But after 10 years, both of the sons die. Man, I'm getting depressed. I'm just in verse 5. It's destruction. How many of you can feel the, the, the heaviness of what's going on here in, in these people's lives? Many in this room, me included, have experienced difficult, difficulty. The death of loved ones, unexplained, unexpected heartaches and pains, just the difficulties of life. Now, when I think, you know, about my life and my wife's life, for me, Don and I were married. Um, we got married back in 1976. Not too many years later, my father passed away when I was 31 and he was 62. He was not, not very old. There were things I wanted to speak to him. How many of you can understand? There were things I wanted to say that I didn't get to say uh, because it was so unexpected. I couldn't say them. I didn't know I needed to go ahead and communicate. And then um, uh, last year, Donna's sister, Donna's younger sister, passed away after an 18-month battle with cancer. So what I'm saying to you is, Everybody has something like this. How many of you are, can? How many of you can identify? How many of you have things like this? They hurt. You don't understand them. You try to figure out what went wrong or what didn't go right. Well, what if? What if that's not the point? Well, sometime after my dad died, I recall reading these very verses in Ruth chapter one, and one of them stood out to me. One single word stood out to me, and that word was survived. Say that word with me this morning, survived. Now, as I was navigating the heartache and the pain and, you know, what was going to happen to my mother, I saw how it affected my brother. My dad had some kind of a heart condition. I began to have, like, sympathetic heart. I don't have a heart problem. I began to have sympathetic heart chest pains. It was a really, really strange, strange time. And how many of you know we have an enemy, we have an adversary who's very happy if we're miserable? We really do. I think we don't regard the fact that we have someone, the devil, who really wants to hurt us. 
And so we have to recognize there are times things happen. We shouldn't pin it on the Lord. We should understand what Jesus said. You're going to have trouble. Somebody just say trouble, just trouble. He said, in this world, you shall have trouble, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. And what Jesus is saying is you need to begin to know me so well. I am the resident present antidote to whatever trouble you're in, knowing him. But dad was gone. It was confusing. It was painful. But the thing that struck me, but I'd survived. My brother had survived. My mom had survived. It was hard, but here we were. And I remember a prominent preacher saying years ago, rule number one, is survive. If you don't get rule number one right, the rest of the rules don't matter. And when we're talking about surviving, I'm not talking about existing. I'm talking about being of a mind to make progress in life no matter what. Not just existing, but realizing we made it through that. We made it through that. Everyone in this room, at the very least, is a survivor. And that doesn't mean we, we should just go on, but we have an opportunity to learn how to face and even overcome the things we've been through. We can gain insights in life, insights about our lives, insights about other people's lives through our pain. We can learn things. We can help other people with the help that the Lord gives us in the context of what we have suffered. This is what faith in God can do. Let me say that again. That's what faith in God can do. I recently heard a, a psychoanalyst or a psychologist talking to a theologian about faith. And they were actually talking about pain. And they were making this, drawing this conclusion. How many of you know that pain's real? Well, if faith in God can help us overcome our pain, then faith in God is stronger than pain. Did you hear that? If pain is real, and it is, and faith in God helps us overcome pain, then faith in God is more real, more substantial than what happens to us. And that's the mindset you begin to develop as you go through these unexpected situations. So far, this story is pretty bleak. There's a famine. The whole family immigrates to a not-so-friendly neighboring country. The husband dies. The sons marry. The sons die. And they marry Moabite women. And the, the marrying a Moabite woman, woman was actually against the tenets of the Jewish faith. Neither one of the, the marriages has children. I've said they lasted 10 years in that wedding, uh, marriage, and then they died. So Naomi is left a widow with no children, two foreign daughters-in-law, who according to the Levitical rule are not allowed to even participate in Naomi's religion. So we can ask ourselves, why did Naomi suffer such personal devastation? Had Elimelech, man, these words... I'm going to go with Billy, Bob, Sarah, Harry, Marvin, and Sam here in a minute. But had Elimelech made a wrong decision to leave Bethlehem, 
How many of you question your decisions when life falls apart? His name means God is king, which implies God was his king, which implies perhaps you wouldn't move to a land that opposes the basic practices of your faith. I I don't know. I do know that our choices have consequences, but things just like the things that happened to Naomi's family could happen to people who've done everything right. We're just going to have to leave that as a mystery. A mystery. And Jesus did say, what we're going to have in the world is trouble, but he has solutions. I do know that no matter what happens to us, whether we made bad choices or simply suffered life's difficulties, it never helps us to toss away our faith. You're far better served to battle your way through your doubts and your pains to a better understanding of God and who he is that in spite of our questions, in spite of our pains, realize that he loves us. God really loves us. Here's the final analysis. It's going to be okay. Look, Look at somebody and just say, listen, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. It's going to be all right. One of the things I learned about helping people when my father died is no one could give me a good reason. So when I'm with people who have loss, I don't give them good reasons. Do you understand what I'm saying? I don't give them a simple explanation because that doesn't really help. I'll tell you what I do. I try to listen to them. I try to care about them. Well, in Ruth 6, we find this. Then Naomi arose with her daughter-in-law, or both of them, daughters-in-law, that she might return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had visited his people by giving them bread. So Naomi heard that the famine had been broken in Bethlehem. And here again, I think we find a vital principle of faith. We could say it this way. She heard, she arose, and she returned. She'd heard that God was active. He was doing something new. He was visiting his people. And when she heard that, even in her brokenness, that inspired enough faith in Naomi's heart That gave her enough resolve to actually do something about her condition. She arose and she returned. She arose that she might return. She acted. She was still in a mess. She still had a long way to go. But here's the problem. If you yield to to bitterness, if you yield to, to that despair, there's no bottom to it. Can you hear what I'm saying? There's no guaranteed end to that. The thing you must do is the thing that you can do. Somebody say, I hear you. Yeah, the thing that you must do is the thing that you can do. I know Jordan Peterson just says it this way. Go make up your bed. 
don't solve the world's problems, clean up your room. Make small incremental movements back toward the kind of life you believe you can actually have. Don't give in to that stuff. Somebody say, I'm not giving in. I'm not giving in. I'm not going there. There's no end to that. Here's what I'm going to do. When I hear, I'm going to arise and I'm going to return. And the, the word return actually is connected to the word repentance. It's, a, it's about changing your mind. And one of the things a lot of people don't understand is there's a part of you that's not really your friend. Do you understand what I'm saying? It says the carnal mind is against God. Or we have to deal with a part of us that is simply not working for our benefit. So do what you can do to improve your situation, even if it's small. It's important. Ruth had heard, and she acted on what she heard. That's the true definition of faith. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. We had our pre-meeting this morning, and my wife actually led it. It's the meeting we have with our volunteers and people in the in worship team. And she began to quote Psalm 34, and she mentioned that it was on our, our wedding announcement. And as she began to quote that verse... You could feel faith coming into the room as we were hearing the words of that psalm. So here's where we are. Ruth decides to go home, and her two daughters-in-law begin to go back with her. And Naomi tries to discourage her two daughter-in-law's for returning. So it says, therefore, Naomi went out from the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on their way to return to the land of Judah. And there's even a little prophetic idea in that one verse having to do with the land of Judah. Moab speaks of the height of narcissism, self-centeredness, and rooted in the nation's very origin are those ideas. And I'm not going to go into that right now. But returning to, quote, the land of Judah speaks of making a turn towards faith and the way of life focused not on yourself, not on your problems, but on praise and appreciation of God. Because Judah literally means praise. Naomi was returning to the land of praise. And it makes a difference how you set your attitude. Are you going to focus on your problems or are you going to focus on who the Lord is and what he wants to do? That was part of the process Naomi was coming through to get through these situations. But over and again, Naomi discourages her two daughter-in-laws. In In, uh, verse 11, she says, turn back my daughters. Why will you go with me? Are there still sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go, for I'm too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, if I should have a husband tonight and should also bear sons, would you wait for them until they were grown? Would you restrain yourselves from having husbands? No, 
my daughters, for it grieves me very much for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And so Naomi's disposition at that point was God had done all this to her. I don't necessarily agree with that conclusion, even though obviously it all happened. But I don't think we should blame the Lord on everything that happens in our lives. How many of you can hear that? I don't think we should blame the Lord. Anyway, here's what happened. Ruth refuses to desert Naomi. And it's apparent from the text that both daughters love Naomi, but Ruth's love was much more profound. Three times Naomi implored her daughter-in-laws to return to Moab. Eventually, Orpah did, but not Ruth. One of the reasons was Naomi knew that she could not promise her daughter-in-laws any positive thing about them returning with her to Bethlehem. And she herself had been shaken in her faith in the wonderful ways and gracious kindness of a faithful covenant God by her experiences. And that's one of the problems we have. We frame in our mind what God's like based on some of the things that have happened to us. And that's a pretty serious mistake. And so Naomi is trying to push her two daughters-in-law away from her as she returns. But here's what Ruth said. These are such famous verses. Ruth said, entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following after you. For wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people should be my people, and your God, my God. And where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death departs you and me. That's profound. And that's coming from a non-Jewish daughter-in-law who in her marriage and, in, and through Naomi's influence connected to the God of Israel, she had determined not only was she going to serve Ruth or serve Naomi, but she did not want to leave the God she had discovered through that relationship. Where you die, I will die. There will I be buried. It's profound. So this picture of devotion and faithfulness needs to be permanently imprinted on our hearts and minds. This is an accurate depiction of the kind of determination we all need to follow Jesus and love our neighbor. In our generation, the slightest misunderstanding or insult or wound or problem or scandal or human failure in the church can cause people to walk away from their faith. But we need to see what real devotion and faithfulness looks like. It looks like Ruth, the Moabitess, and the dedication that she had. And so they go back to Bethlehem. And when they go back, it says the entire city was in an uproar when they saw Naomi, and they said, is this Naomi? Naomi, of course, remember, means pleasant. But Naomi said to them, do not call me Naomi. 
Call me Mara, which means bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, and the Lord has brought me home again empty. Let me read that again. I went out full. Say that with me. I went out full, and the Lord has brought me home again. How? Empty. The Lord has brought me home again. How? Empty. But was that true? How many of you understand that thoughts that plague you plague you because they're essentially not true? How many of you realize the conclusions we make that lead us into despair are 99% inaccurate? And that's where Naomi was. She was making the right move. But in her heart, in her mind, she left full. But when she came home, she came home empty. But she wasn't empty. Why would I say that? Because she had Ruth. Ruth means friend. And here's the thing we need to recognize. No matter where you are, no matter what's going on, you've got a friend. Ruth was a constant presence, and that speaks of the Lord Jesus being our constant presence. And the thing that strikes me, too, about Naomi saying, don't call me pleasant, call me Mara, call me bitter, that Mara and Mary are the same words. They're the same names. And years ago, as I was reading through the gospel, I realized that Jesus had five people named Mary in his close circle of friends. That made me stop and think, do I have five people in my close circle of friends with the very same name? And the answer was no. Most people don't. What was that about? Mary, Jesus' mother, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the wife of Cleopas, Mary, John Mark's mother, Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. What's the message? Why was Jesus surrounded with Mara? Why was Jesus surrounded with bitterness? I believe it's because the, it's the number one danger and issue in the spiritual life. When the Lord brought Jesus into the world and when his ministry began, he finds himself surrounded by five women who all have the same name, which was the name that Naomi changed her name to, Mara or bitterness. How many of you listening? It's, it's our, I believe it's our greatest enemy. And the Bible tells us to guard ourselves against it. Pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God. Lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble. And by this, many become defiled. Let me make this point. You have a friend. Turn to somebody and say, you have a friend. You have a friend. You have a friend that's made a promise. Josiah, you, you and Quan and friend there, 
I'm not talking about those guys. I'm talking about Jesus. I'm talking about the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit. You have a friend that promised you this. I will never what? Leave you, nor what? Forsake you. If you think you're forsaken, you're mistaken. You are. You got bad information posing as good information. You got lies posing as the truth. And one of the ways you know it's a lie is does it make you hopeful and happy or miserable and depressed? What does it do to you? But there's a friend who sticks closer than the brother. Talks about in Proverbs. And here's the thing. Naomi had a friend she could not push away no matter how hard she tried. She tried three times. And eventually, Ruth grabbed a hold of her and said, I'm not leaving, period. You can't chase Jesus off. Now, you'll hear all kinds of things about how you can, but I don't think you can. You can't run him off. He thinks he's in charge. He thinks he's everywhere at all times in a certain regard. Naomi had a friend that she could not push away no matter how hard she tried, no matter what she believed. She, like us, have a friend who will never leave us, even if we try to chase him away. How many of you since, the met, uh, since you met the Lord actually fell away at some point? Guess whose hand's up this morning? Mine. I remember I met the Lord in high school. When I got to college, I basically turned away. I did stuff I shouldn't have done. And I decided to come back. And there's a verse in Hebrews that says, once you've tasted the powers of the age to come and turn away, you can't be restored. How many of you ever read that verse? Oh, that's the verse I read when I decided to come back. That's the first verse I ran across. Guess what I said? I said, I don't care what that verse says. I'm back. I'm back. You got to have nonsensical faith sometimes. You got to look at everything against you and say, this is good. This is working perfectly. Everything is turning out exactly as expected. You have to look your life in the face and say, sorry, I'm back. I'm in. I went that way. I know what it leads to. I'm back. I've heard. I believe. I've returned. I'm not making that same mistake. Am I embarrassed about having fallen from the faith? Well, sure. But Naomi was embarrassed. She still returned. Can you imagine going out of Bethlehem, a wealthy, prominent woman with a great family and coming back with no husband, no children to the very place you left in such high admiration. It was such a shock to Bethlehem. It said the city was in uproar. Isn't this pleasant? Isn't this Naomi? And she said, no, it's bitterness. I went out full, but I have nothing now. But she had a friend in her life 
who would set the stage for the most amazing comeback story in the history, not of the Bible, but of the world. Because Ruth joined Naomi through a ridiculous kind of marriage that eventually produced the great king of Israel, David, which eventually produced the Lord Jesus himself, which eventually produced every single believer in this room. She said, I came back empty, but she came back with more than she knew. Now, I think the first 35 minutes of this message was very boring. (laughs) But I think that conclusion was worth the journey. You got more than you know. Let me share one story. I told about my heartache, but life's not all about heartache. Sometimes life's about fulfilled promise and victory and God changing a difficult situation. I've told this before, but it's just such a great testimony. I have to tell it. It shows you how great the Lord is. But for 20 years, I worked as a salesman and I spent hours in the cars going from client to client, city to city. Often I would listen to Bible teachers on the radio. One morning I was listening to J. Vernon McGee. How many of you ever heard J. Vernon McGee? He talks funny, but he's got something. Well, I was stopped at a traffic light behind a dirty transfer truck, and I looked on the back of the truck on the pull-down door, and someone had written in the dirt, test. And when I looked at that word, it sort of sprang out at me like a test is coming. And I thought, oh, not good. I knew a test was imminent. I knew that the Lord was alerting me because it was an open book test. Open the book. And at the very moment all of this was going on in the car, J. Vernon quoted Isaiah 46, 1 through 4, and then followed it with some commentary. And this is what he said. He was talking about the difference between idols and serving the Lord. And, and so Isaiah says, Bell bows down, Nebo stoops, their idols were on the beast and on the cattle. Your carriages were heavily loaded, a burden to the weary beast. They stoop. They bow down together under the weight of the idols. They could not deliver the burden, but have themselves gone into captivity. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of house of Israel, who have been upheld by me from my birth, who have been carried from the womb, even to your old age, I am he, and even to gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made, I will bear, even I will carry and deliver you. And then good old Jane Vernon said, many people try to carry and support God. The heathen carry their idols and are greatly burdened by them just as the prophet Isaiah reports, but the true God wants to carry us, even to old age, to our gray hairs. Yes, he wants to carry us, J. Vernon said. Will we let him? This is the test. 
And I went, oh. Well, at that point, Donna was pregnant with our fourth child. And I think John Mark came into the room. And when John Mark came into the room, Donna got out of bed and her water broke. Ladies, you know what I'm talking about who've had children. And if your water breaks prematurely, there's not much hope of saving the child. And she, Donna fully expected she was about to lose the child. It was just in the third month. But we remembered the warning that a test was coming. And I began to believe that word that the Lord gave us from Isaiah 46. We gave the situation to the Lord. We called the doctor in the morning who wanted to see Donna right away. And upon his examination, there was evidence that amniotic fluid, which is in the sack, had been released. But when he measured her, her measurements were exactly as they were supposed to be. Didn't make any sense. And the doctor couldn't explain it. I made this note years ago. Having no medical explanation the perplexed physician may have suggested that perhaps Donna had wet the bed. But we knew better. We should not even in the bed. And she knew the difference. I think ladies know the difference between uh, one thing and the other, right? Men, you're lost. That's okay. Go ask questions later. But women know the difference in doing a number one and you water break it. But we had six months to go. Then I've actually got this date on July the 17th in 1985. The Lord spoke to me. And he encouraged me about some business problems I had. And then he ended with these words and I wrote them down. And as you rest and trust in me, so shall your child be born without a hitch. And that carried me and Donna those months, particularly from July till the 11th of August when Katie was born. Donna carried the baby full term, gave birth to a beautiful, healthy baby girl. But two phrases stood out to us from the passage in Isaiah. I will carry and I will bear. I will carry. Here's what the Lord has to say for you. I will carry. Here's what the Lord has to say for you. I will bear. I have more, but that's enough. That's enough. One last statement Donna made. She told me that she thinks one of the most significant truths found in the book of Ruth, and we really only looked at one chapter, is how utterly faithful Ruth was to Naomi. Let me say that again. How utterly faithful Ruth was to Naomi. The faithfulness on the human level. Ruth had no guaranteed future in Bethlehem other than the reality of their poverty. In the Old Testament, when you had no husband and no children, you were destined 
for a life of poverty. But she would not let her mother-in-law go back alone and face the shame and humiliation of returning in such an impoverished state to face her community. Our culture doesn't much honor loyalty and faithfulness, but God does. How about you? Is that one of your values this morning? Faith and loyalty. Well, let me pray for you. Why don't you stand with me? We do have ministry teams this morning. If you would like prayer, if you will, there goes Josiah right for the area there. Come up here and we'll be glad to pray for you. Let me ask you this this morning. Did the, law, did the Lord speak to anybody this morning? Are you encouraged? It bothers me that he blesses and then breaks. It would make more sense he'd be broken than blessed, right? But that's not the pattern. I was reading a book by John Tyson, and he talked about the five things a father needs to teach his children, so that the a son, in particular, so that the son can be a man. And one of those five is this son, you are not important. Other people are. That's what it is to grow up, ladies and gentlemen, is to care about other people. So, Father, we ask for that. Lord, I'm, I'm convicted as I read these verses and this testimony of Ruth. I see where I fall short in areas, and I ask, Lord, that you would just gird us up. Lord, that you would, by the power of your spirit and the strength of your word and relationships that are sustainable, that you would help us this morning, touch us, guide us, and bless us. And we ask, Father, for that in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. God bless you, ladies and gentlemen. Have a great week. You've been listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. For more information on this message and other resources, visit queencity.church.